Hello, and welcome to Truth and Learning. I'm Matt Richter, and I'm here with my favorite person in the world, Tiagi. No, just kidding. It's Will Talheimer. Hi, Will. How are you? You started out the Truth and Learning episode with a lie. That's like, what's that? Wow. Just always calling me out, Will. <laughs> well, that's part of the repartee. I know, I know, which is good because we have a faces for, for radio. Oh, you're going to get it right out of the way, right? <laughs> yeah, it's done now. <laughs> you don't even yell at me anymore when I start with that. <laughs> it's learned helplessness, man. <laughs> uh, learned helplessness. At least we're not doing learned optimism. That joke is really a deep one. Yeah, you have to yeah, really be into that, that positive better, psychology stuff. You know, We better edit that one out. <laughs> I think only Martin Seligman would get it. So... Anyway, anyway, so I wanted to uh, kick off with a disclaimer before we start because we did receive some feedback that you and I were cursing too much on the show and we had a long conversation as to whether we should stop cursing and we realized that we cursed five times during that conversation and were incapable of stopping. So we're going to open with a disclaimer. The disclaimer will start this way. Hey, Will, did you hear about this one? You're supposed to. There you go. A priest, a rabbi, and an instructional designer go into a bar, a very rough bar. Guess what happens? The instructional designer gets thrown out for cursing. Okay, folks, but seriously, there may be words uttered in this podcast that make some listeners uncomfortable. As if our jokes, like we have faces for radio, uh, weren't bad enough. So there you go, folks. So each week, each recording that there that is, uh, Will and I will do a disclaimer. We'll hopefully make it uh, a bit uh, irreverent, but we will make sure that we warn you if there is uh, language that may be inappropriate for those under the age of ninety. Sound this, good? Uh, this uh, this podcast is suitable for earbuds. That's right. This not, this podcast not for listening. Don't this, don't let other people hear it. This podcast is probably not suitable for humans, but earbuds <laughs> definitely. So anyway, anyway, on with the show. So today we are going to do three. We're back to our three segment format. And uh, Will, you went and interviewed two folks from the Good Practices podcast, and I I love that show. Uh, Ross and Owen. And you're going to uh, uh, give a little bit more of an introduction before we, we dive into it. Um, and for our second segment, uh, we thought we would spend a little bit of time getting into the pragmatic, getting into the, the practical of how you determine whether research is good research. How do you evaluate evidence? We spent a lot of time talking about evidence-based how do you know if the evidence is any good? And we're going to give you a whole bunch of different ways to, to, to look at it. And then finally, we're going to end with a segment that, that we didn't realize would be popular, but uh, um, both of us have been spending time talking about this independently, uh, about who the learning translators are, the, the folks that we go to, the folks that we trust uh, to help translate some of the research that's out there. And so we thought we'd share that with you. And of course, we'll end with best and the worst. And that's, that's our plan for today. What do you think, Stan? <laughs> uh, it's a good plan. Of course, uh, 
you know, I, this three segment thing makes me nervous. So I'm going to like, maybe like interrupt a little bit. And, That's okay. We, and you, you interrupt and, and we, we detour anytime you want. Cause I have the delete button. <laughs> I have power. No, I'm just kidding. I have no power. So anyway, shall we, uh, shall we dive off into your interview with, with uh, Ross and Owen? Yeah. So um, let me just say uh, the good practice podcast is one that I've been listening to for a year or so, and I really like what they do. And I wanted to ask them some questions. So let's just let it rip. That's great. So, uh, hello everyone. I am here uh, with uh, Ross Garner and Owen Ferguson of the Good Practice Podcast. And uh, as you know, Matt Richter and I are beginning our own podcast. And so we, we don't know what the hell we're doing. And so we're going out and we thought we'd ask people who have really good podcasts uh, what they think. And even if ours is a complete disaster, at least we'll be able to point it to other people who are, know, know what they're doing. I've been listening to your podcast for almost a year now. It's called The Good Practice Podcast. I'm loving it. And uh, you even stooped recently to having me on as a guest. Episode 154, which titled, How Do You Know Your Interventions Are Working? And if people are interested in your podcast, they can go to podcast.com goodpractice.com. Now you guys work for a company called Good Practice and on your website it says we inspire millions of leaders and managers to overcome challenges, improve their performance and excel. And I was just looking through your website today actually and I noticed you are based in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland. Uh, is, is that still part of the EU or is that? Um... <laughs> no, it's a touchy subject, Will. <laughs> when are you releasing this podcast? Because if it's at any point in the next 50 years, we're probably still in the EU. <laughs> okay. <good. laughs> uh, but what I want to start out with in asking you is, you know, tell me about your podcast. What are you trying to accomplish with it? <laughs> That's an interesting question because I don't think we set out to accomplish anything other than we were interested in doing a podcast. So um, uh, it's interesting, Ross and I have slightly different recollections uh, on exactly how this uh, started off. But I think that the, the core components that are, are, that are common to both our recollections are um, we both listen to a lot of podcasts. We somehow alighted on the thought of um, we'd like to do a podcast about learning and development. Um, but we wanted to do it in a way that we felt we could sustain. Uh, and that um, wasn't overtly driven by the desire to self-promote or just to promote what good practice does. We wanted to share um, our enthusiasm for learning and development in general. So it was almost um, the kind of conversations that we ended up having in the pub because we are uh, nerds and we're dull right we would talk about <laughs> L&D type things in the pub and it was really you know how do you bring that that sense of conversation into a podcast format That's I think our sense was that at that time there uh, was not a huge number of L&D podcasts not like now when there are <laughs> a staggering number of podcasts um, 
but also that we didn't want to have a 30 minute advert every week we thought if people were going to give up that ch- amount of time each week then it has to be primarily fun to listen to uh if it's useful or interesting then that's maybe secondary and then i think if it has some sort of marketing value then that is probably third in our priorities do the big bosses at good practice do they think the same thing hey owen <laughs> is the big boss at good practice. <laughs> that's how we've got away with it for this yeah. long <laughs> Yeah, it's like, it's like, yeah, it's like. Uh, oh, and what are you thinking? <laughs> I, I'd like to think that it that it adds uh, to the conversation in learning and development, um, and uh, I don't think this is necessarily intention right at the very start. But for me, it's um, you know an hour or so uh, a week that's carved out for my own personal development. You know, I get to speak to a whole range of fascinating, interesting, really smart people uh, about. Um, something that they specialize in and that's you know that's great and what I thought was uh, if we just set out with the purpose of generating leads from a podcast it would be doomed to fail um, uh, I think you know I'm, I'm essentially what I said was if we want to do a podcast um, we should do it just for the love of doing it in and of itself rather than for any marketing gain because I still don't think that we get an awful lot of marketing benefit from the podcast, if I'm honest. Well, and and I have to say as a listener, uh, it doesn't seem like an advertisement at all. In fact, when I go to your podcast website, I had a hard time finding the good practice link. (laughs) One of the things that Matt and I were thinking about, and this probably comes more from me than from him, but it's to focus on some stuff that people are are, are sort of afraid to talk about, you know, things like corruption in the industry, bad actors, uh, you know, things that are kind of controversial and we're not sure where to go with that, you know, whether we should name names, uh, et cetera. Um, you know, we, we have a particular uh, skepticism or um, concern about some of what uh, some of the trade organizations are doing. They're not really supporting the members of the field that well, we think. So we, we just don't know what to do with that. And we, you know, I wondered if you'd wrangled with how controversial to be and if you have any advice. I think that there have been a couple of times where I have run something past Owen or where a guest has said something during the show and then I've messaged them afterwards and said, are you sure that you want to have this joke about your employer included? And they've always said, please edit that out. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I mean, it's we tend to have people on who we get on well with. If the arguments are heated, I don't think that they're ever disrespectful. Um, no, it's not really been a problem particularly. Yeah, I get, but I, I guess we've deliberately not, or have we deliberately? We just haven't tended to tackle the kinds of topics that you're talking about. Well, if I'm honest, yep. um, uh, I, I think ours is. Uh, the, the intent is to inform and have a conversation with smart people with something that we um, think is worth sharing. So, so we don't tend to have people on the podcast who we s- uh, specifically disagree with or vehemently disagree with. I, we might disagree with aspects of, uh, of what they say or some of the things that they um, uh that they mention, but in general, it tends to be people, people that we respect. And so 
yeah. and the conversation is always about what they are working on or what they specialize in. So it'd be very difficult, I think, for us to to have something where we're dealing with something um, as controversial as you're outlining. Okay. Well, I, you know, one of the things I really admire about your show is that you are willing and you seem to, it seems like an integral part of what you do is to push back when somebody on your podcast, one of your guests says something crazy or you disagree with, and you're, you're, you're not nasty about it. You're, you're, you know, you, you do it very well, but I wonder, uh, did that come naturally? Did you have to like build that in? Uh, tell me about that. Cause I think it's really valuable. Well, I mean, I think I come from a, 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 I'm in the fortunate position of not knowing terribly much about anything. And so I don't think I realize I'm pushing back. <laughs> I think I'm going to say something and I go, what does that mean? Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think maybe that's perceived as pushback sometimes or, you know, sometimes they can justify it and sometimes it might make them rethink. I, I've been told that I have increasingly adopted a Greek choric role where I am um, representing the audience. I try to ask the questions I think the audience would ask and I want to assume that the audience are, they're probably smarter than me, but uh, I don't want to assume that they know everything that we're talking about. And so that, that probably sounds like pushback quite a lot. Yeah, I, I think um, there's two things. One, Ross is being slightly disingenuous, I think. He, <laughs> he does know a fair amount of stuff. He knows exactly what he's doing sometimes when he pushes back. Um, so there's that, but also... Um, uh, Ross has a journalism background, uh, and I think uh, he can't help that from popping up every now and then where he wants to ask a more interrogative type of question. It's also, we, I mean, we have people on the show that we are friendly with, or generally speaking, we'll finish friendly with them if we don't know them in advance. So even when we push back, if they really like fluffed an answer or fell apart, we'd probably edit it out. I think we're not in the business of humiliating people. I mean, I think to you want to have a, a more scandalous podcast, maybe will and kind of um, challenge things. I think our position has been that there is there's a lot of challenge that goes in in the on in the L and D industry, uh, particularly at conferences. You hear a lot of ideas being rubbished, and I, I think that we want to adopt uh, a more friendly tone. That's not to criticize your approach. I think there's a place for it. I just think because other people are doing it, and obviously with your research, you've been doing it for, um, for decades, um, that we should take a, a slightly different position and let people air their views, uh, even though we are selecting those views to be some that we largely agree with. Yeah. That's great. You know, what's the best thing you've seen in learning in the last couple of weeks? I could do one. Okay. I, I don't necessarily know that it is a, um, it's not, it didn't happen in the learning industry, but I think that it was relevant to our roles, which is what I just watched the documentary Apollo 11, which was produced by CNN and kind of a host of other companies, uh, all about the moon landing, awful lot of moon landing stuff lately, but this was just absolutely incredible. And it used nothing but archive footage and sound from the time. Uh, I thought it was really clever to, um, to tell the story using existing materials rather than go and get new interviews and it, and it made me think about some of the videos that we produce at Good Practice and um, how there might be existing content that we could use um, in the same way. So we are um, currently in the process of hiring, um, hiring uh, a user experience person 
Um, and so I'm going through an awful lot of uh, CVs and portfolios. One of the things I'm always interested in is where there is a, a really strong um, online community uh, is um, where they naturally go to uh, to get stuff. So uh, in the software development world, um, I've mentioned this on the Good Practice podcast a few times. Uh, I think one of the, the best communities of practice that's emerged is Stack Overflow. It's a really simple question and answer site, um, but it's a, an amazing repository of uh, information and thinking. Um, and you know, it's, it, it's, a, it's a community that's been driven through a particular mechanism. And it's a, it's a marvelous resource. Uh, and on the UX side, I'm seeing something, sim- it's not exactly the same, but it's similar, uh, where uh, there's sites like uh, Dribble and Behance, where people are sharing their portfolios or ideas and they're also getting feedback and affirmation uh, or otherwise about it. Uh, And I think there is a lot to be learned from looking at these uh, online communities of practice that have naturally emerged, not with the intention, they, they, they haven't gone out and said, let's create a learning thing, but almost by, in an oblique way, they have created something that is an incredible um, source of learning for people who have a particular um, skill. Hmm. And do we have anything like that in the L&D space? Uh, I, I struggle to think of something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, interesting. What about, uh, and I know I'm putting you on the spot here and uh, you know, haven't given you any time or thought about it, but anything that strikes you as the best in learning from the last couple of weeks or months? You mean the, the worst? The worst, yes, the worst. Um, I can think of something. So uh, on holiday, uh, I went to go visit uh, a medieval abbey, uh, slightly earlier than medieval, Middle Ages uh, kind of uh, abbey, Abbey Fontfroid in the southeast of France. Um, and it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing place. It's got an amazing history. And they have these um, audio guides um, sort of plugged into uh, like a um, terrible Android tablet. And the user interface was utterly appalling. It was unusable. <laughs> I gave up eventually and looked up something on else on my phone to get the information about the area of the Abbey that was actually in rather than the thing that they provided. Um, so I think it was a, a, a huge missed opportunity. The only thing that worked well on that is um, they had these uh, Bluetooth beacons. So when you walked into a room, it would automatically start playing the audio for, uh, for the room. Um, but aside from that, like if you wanted to, to, to go back or if you wanted to skip all, it just, I could not use it at all. And so, yeah. That was it. That's the, that's the worst user experience. For, for, and the intent was to, to learn about the history of the Abbey. It was awful. No, that's too bad. Ross? So I, I confess I've had to look this up because I couldn't remember the exact numbers. Um, this is the worst thing that I've learned in learning. Is So the researchers Angela Duckworth and Katie Milkman have been studying behavior change for the past year in the U.S., Uh, They ran an experiment where they were trying to encourage people to go to the gym. They had 53 different combinations of things designed to improve gym attendance. Uh, One of those things was not doing anything at all. They just didn't do anything. You got the gym membership and off you went, let that be the end of it. Of the other 52 things that they tried, none of them beyond things that we know worked had any influence whatsoever. So the, the things that they know work were reminding people to go to the gym, 
paying them to go to the gym and having them make a plan for the dates and times when they wanted to go. On top of that, they layered on uh, 52 different combinations of uh, research-backed ideas and nothing had any impact. Wow. So that's, there was talking about the behavior change revolution on uh, Freakonomics and it seems to have stalled slightly. Oh, well, that's very interesting. I, I do, you know, the one thing that uh, frustrates me in our field is we don't do many A-B tests <laughs> No, at all, <laughs> which is... Well, I'm, uh, I'm trying to set one up right now, and it's... Um, uh, you have to get a lot of permissions before people will let you experiment on anyone. So I observe my mistake was asking for permission. <laughs> but, right. but, you know, that's the... Uh, so Ross is doing it as part of his master's program. Uh, whereas um, if we as a company want to A-B test uh, different designs on our products um, or if we want to try out uh, a new feature uh, and we want to you know we want to split test that we, we can do that there's no permissions required it's just a case of some you know people will see different things that happens naturally as part of product development it's just a it's a thing uh, that all uh, online companies do um, but whereas ross wants to do something for research to you know as part of his proper academic uh, literature and he he's not doing anything more he's not he's not doing anything different but he has to jump through a whole load of ethical hoops um, well so the so the uni have signed off on the approach the ethics of uh, my approach but they have insisted that i get a signature from someone at the partner organization giving me approval to run this study and once you ask someone for a signature for something, then it starts to get referred around and batted about a place. Whereas I think if it wasn't to do with uh, the University of Edinburgh, we would have just done it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Listen, I've taken uh, a lot of your time. Thank you very much. Uh, Ross Garner, Owen Ferguson of the Good Practice Podcast. It's been a delight to speak with you today. Thank you, Thank well. you very Good much for your podcast. Indeed. back well that was that was pretty cool well you know you know one of the things they said struck me matt uh, was you know well they they you know claimed right away and they've been doing this for a while you know they're not just some upstart you know they, they have a great podcast lots of listeners and they said even now they feel that there's no commercial benefit to them and well you know you and i were hoping to get you know, rich honestly wealthy off this yeah and, so, folks, I'd like to announce that this will be our last episode, and we'll be closing <laughs> shop. You might as well turn it off now. So, no, I, I, I agree with them. I, I, we're not going to get rich off of podcasting, but I, I think it's a, it's a good way to, to dive off into other endeavors, and, and it's certainly fun for us. And, uh, and, and like they said, you know, they always go into the episode trying to find some way to learn and, and develop. and. And close your ears because I'm gonna I'm gonna compliment you, um, but every time we talk, I learn something, and that's always a good thing. Yeah, well, I think it's sort of a good way to live live one's life. You know, do what you want to do. <laughs> yeah, know? until um, the as long as it's not too dangerous and and uh, you know, so 
this is fun. We're learning. We're going to invite people on the show. You know. Uh, although I did, I did find that their version to um, to controversy, uh, and I don't know if I'd call it a total aversion because listening to them, they they do challenge their their guests and so forth. But but their their espoused aversion to controversy was a bit surprising, and uh, I don't know if you felt that way when you you were talking with them. Yeah, well, I I think I brought that up. Um, well, maybe they don't want to admit it. <laughs> Because they do have an ongoing business where they're creating, you know. Well, they, work. unlike us, they have clients. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> uh, but, well, but, yeah. But I enjoyed it. I thought that, I thought it was a great conversation and, um, and, uh, you know, I enjoyed their show. I guess I was thinking, my gosh, if, if someone has their show or our show and no time to listen to both, which show would people choose? And uh, well, I had now, to go with theirs. Th- this episode, they can listen to ours and they get the best of both worlds. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, the that's one thing that Ross said that kind of like took me, and he didn't quite say it directly, but basically he said, I've been rubbishing ideas for decades. <laughs> and that's what I do. And then, so I shouldn't maybe shy away from, you know, uh, pushing back, I guess, being controversial. So... Well, but I think I think uh, we have an obligation and a responsibility as people who go out and work with clients in learning and development specifically to push and challenge bad content. And, I think so too. And that's that's part of our role as consultants in this field. Um, our job is is outcome based, absolutely, but there's there's certainly an ideology that goes with what we do to not use inappropriate content and material. Well, absolutely. You know, I, I go back to, uh, you know, we, we debunk, we have to be negative. Uh, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, in the medical profession, first do no harm. And Owen was mentioning AB testing or split test, split yeah. half testing. And, uh, you know, I think that's really important. I, hardly any of us do it. I think you and I maybe have mentioned it before in this show, but um, there's real opportunities there. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to A-B testing in a later episode. Probably. Can Probably. I? Can I can we always I, forget uh, it. <laughs> oh, we can just forget <laughs> No, no. I said we always forget it when we're coming up with our list. <laughs> <laughs> so. And you'd, you'd think we wouldn't forget it because it's at the beginning of the alphabet. That's true. It's an A and a B. So, why, why do you insist on explaining my jokes? How else will people understand them? <laughs> oh, oh, there's is, is that. Okay. Oh my gosh. Okay. On that right. note. Well, I just you know let's. I want to thank again the uh, Good Practice Podcast guys, Ross and Owen, uh, for joining us uh, for for slumming it for a little while. And please, uh, when you share your regrets for having joined us, just send them to us in an email instead of posting them publicly. (laughs) (laughs) On that note, Will, let's talk about uh, how to evaluate evidence. Well, Matt, before we do that, I know you want to go right to segment two, but I have a segment 1.5. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I almost forgot. Go ahead. You know, I wasn't going to let you. So uh, we have the Truth in Learning podcast has a uh, listener page. 
That's right. And on that listener page, we ask uh, a number of fascinating questions. So one question we ask is about our podcast music. Do you like it? Do you not like it? I can't believe uh, anyone dislikes we, it. We, <laughs> we don't have enough information for that one. It's sort of all over the place. We asked about uh, Matt's infantile face for podcasting joke. We didn't ask. You asked. I have to tell you, Matt, that 67% of our listeners said to keep that stupid face for radio joke for 100 episodes. See? That's more than two-thirds. <laughs> I know. Who are the third? And so so among the three respondents. <laughs> <laughs> we had four respondents before you, before you biased the results. So these are pre-biased results. Okay. And we, al we also asked, uh, well, we asked which trade associations are the most corrupt in the learning field. Um, I'm not going to tell you the answers to that yet until um, we get more responses. Uh, we asked, should truth in learning, should we name the names of the bad actors we comment on? And 50% said yes. So, Does that mean 50% said no or did they abstain? They, uh, one person abstained and um, one person said, probably not. Uh, no need causing trouble. These bad actors being warned is advocacy enough. <laughs> oh, well, the other person said, uh, no. Well, actually, they, they didn't say these things. They chose these things from a multiple choice list. But they said, no, Matt and Will are international treasures and need to live long, active lives in advocacy. In other words, they think we'll get killed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, listen, you know, we don't get really have enough data yet, so we hope people will uh, come and join us. Now, we asked some other questions as well, like, you know, what topics do you want us to cover? One person, I just read this list really quickly, as fast as I can. Priming, cognitive load, seductive details, recall practice, space prep, space repetition, constructivism versus constructivism, and every other ism, inquiry-based learning, problem-based learning, active learning, gamification, and serious games. I want to, as long as we're doing some housekeeping, I want to ask people to go to iTunes or to the podcast app uh, that's a part of Apple and please review our podcast and rate it. Five stars would be much appreciated. You know, as you know, Will and I love smiley sheets and the smiley sheet of our podcast enables us to actually get greater exposure. And so higher ratings and more reviews mean that more people uh, are offered the podcast when they do searches that, that aren't specifically for us. So help us out. Go give us a review. Hopefully a good one. All right. So how do we evaluate evidence, Will? How do we know if the evidence is good? <coughs> Boy, what I evidence? Choked, I choked you up. You did? Yeah. So, well, I guess that's, that's a very good question. You have to first determine if you have evidence in front of you. Is that what you mean by that, um, that uh, Socratic question? <laughs> well, I guess so. Most of our listeners will be practitioners in the learning field. And uh, there's a lot of ideas floating around the, uh, I don't know, the world. And uh, so, out of you know, there's a lot of evidence out there. People say, "Well, you got to do it this way because of this. You got to do it this way because so and so says this. You got to do it this way because certain research says this." Well, how do you know whether that research is any good? Should you follow it? Are you going to create harm? Are you going to create benefit? Um, how do we know 
whether our research-based recommendations or any recommendations, any evidence is worthwhile to listen to or not. Evidence is, is in the shape of many different things. So, so your question is more apropos than not, right? So is the evidence evidence that comes out of research? Is the evidence anecdotal evidence? Is the evidence observational uh, from one person? Is the evidence hearsay? Um, what kind of evidence are we talking about? And then we have to evaluate which of those is going to be more reliable, which of those is going to be more valid. And there are standards for each of each category of those, right? Uh, research has very clear standards for what makes it good research. We, we know what qualifies as good research. And even then, that good research could be questionable uh, if new information comes out. Uh, Absolutely. And, and let me say that uh, we owe a debt of uh, thanks to Patty Shank, who was on the previous episode, or one of the previous episodes, depending on whether where this one gets popped in. And uh, she talked about uh, sort of levels of evidence. And so we wanted to talk about this because we thought that was a fascinating idea that there's sort of levels of evidence. Some evidence is better than others. And so I poked around a little bit and um, uh, it turns out that there's not just one model for levels of evidence. There's a whole bunch of taxonomies or frameworks out there. So if you have a journal editor, the journal editor is getting lots of submissions for publication and they have to decide, you know, is this, is this rigorous research? Is this bad research? Where, where does it fall? So they often have a taxonomy they use. Um, in the medical profession, there's levels of evidence they use to make medical recommendations. I actually decided that what they're offering, like the medical profession, and that's where it's more fully formed, it's somewhat useful for us, but it's not perfectly useful. So I decided that I would <clears throat> take a shot at writing a first draft of sort of a levels of evidence for us in the workplace learning. So, and you came up with 12 levels. 12 is a good number. It's a dozen. That's right. It makes it easy to name. Um, but one of the things I like about it is you have some values that kind of help form your criteria. And correct me if I'm wrong, um, but one aspect of it was, is your evidence objectively uh, determined? Um, is it independent? Another is, is the evidence something that happens over and over again, or is it a one-time thing? In other words, if it's research-based, is it replicated? If it's not research-based, is it a phenomenon that shows up over and over again? Um, is it generalizable? In other words, can we extrapolate from it? Or is it just qualitative and descriptive of what we're looking at? Um, does it support your hypothesis? Or are your conclusions uh, from the evidence consistent with uh, your original ideas? Uh, and so forth. So there are definite criteria or values or standards that form this hierarchy. Did I capture that correctly, Will? Uh, you, you did. I think you added more than I, I added. Um, and, but that's good. Oh, I read between the lines. You so. did. Well, and there's, it's, <laughs> a, it's a complicated area. Well, and Wait. I, yeah, go on. I cut you off. Oh, no, that's fine. We're going to give you a link to these 12, to, to the, we're going to give you a link to the blog post that has these 12 levels of evidence. Um, and one of the nice 
takeaways from that is a link to Wikipedia that talks about levels of evidence in general. And you'll see that there's uh, some disagreements about whether this is a good thing to do or not to do. But why, I, I why would it be a bad thing? Whenever you're making decisions, there's contextual uh, forces that you have to pay attention to. So for example, um, in some of the levels of evidence, they list meta-analyses below random control trials. But they also list it above if you, if you do it properly, right? So there can be a lot of confusions about that. Now, in the 12 that I came up with, I tried to make it more relevant to those of us in the learning space. And let me just, I'm not gonna go through all 12 because that would be boring. Uh, that would be bad podcasting. But uh, just to give you a sense of what they're like. So level one, this is evidence from systematic research reviews and or meta-analyses of all relevant random controlled trials that have also been utilized by practitioners as people like us and found both beneficial and practical from a cost time effort perspective. Level two, same evidence as level one, but not systematically or sufficiently utilized by practitioners to confirm beliefs and practicality. So, so Will, let me ask you a question. Yeah, you, you bring up this idea of a randomized controlled trial. It, what, what is that? Isn't a randomized controlled trial something that is, by definition, not so controlled? Well, yeah, and this is jargon, so I apologize for this, but this is the term they use. But basically, it means that it's a well-designed experiment. So in, in the learning field, we would, uh, we would have maybe two versions of a learning program. And we would randomly assign learners to one versus the other. In that way, we would know that it's the, uh, the learning version, not the learners, that made the difference. So this is kind of like a randomized drug test. When, exactly. when you're testing the, the viability of a new drug, you, you give half of the patients randomly and anonymously the placebo. You give half of them randomly and anonymously the, the actual drug and you, you look at the outcomes over time. Exactly. It's the same kind of thing we would do with a, 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 a being two different types of learning designs. Exactly. Now, now, but, but isn't in learning, if I take two designs, aren't they each variables? Or am I taking a design that's been around a while and you utilized quite a bit over time? How, how does that work as a control? Well, ideally what you would do is vary only one thing. Okay. You'd, you'd create a learning program that utilized spaced repetitions, for example. And then you would take the exact same program, but you would, and you would give those same repetitions, but you wouldn't space them in time. And then the only difference in them is that one has spaced repetition and one has massed repetitions. And voila, then you can know that it's the spacing that makes a difference or it doesn't. Is it possible that the uh, content or the other, the design of the activities that are either spaced or not spaced just are stupid and bad? Oh, of course. That's, so, why we, that's why we experiment. So in other words, we could get a null effect in both categories. And then we also know that it's less about the spaced learning and more about the design itself. If we get a null effect in both, both options, um, correct? Well the, well, well, the effect is really comparing one to the other. Right. So if you get no effect, we still don't know if it's the activity was stupid or if it's space learning that doesn't work. 
exactly. Well, now you could compare uh, training to no training. That's another comparison you can do. So we could end up having multiple con variant controls. Well, let's step back. Why do we do these? This, why do we do this research in the first place? We do it to help us make better decisions. We want to find out something. So we're not just, you know, willy nilly just doing experiments. So I, uh, I'm I'm diving deeply into this because this is one of the things that troubles me about social science research, uh, and as someone who's trained in social science. I find this, I find a lot of the designs in psychology uh, lacking in, in good solid controls because there are too many, um, there are too many contextual variables you can't factor for. And you can try a lot of, a lot of good assays do try and mitigate those, but it, it's really important for us, I think, to question the, the viability of, of good control studies when we're dealing with humans and we're, we're looking at behaviors. Well, am I wrong or is that, well, am I it's misunderstanding? It's, it's complicated. So, well, that's my point. It's really tricky. Well, it's, it's tricky in this sense. So like in the, in the, uh, so recently um, I was doing some work. Uh, there was a, a team of us, uh, an academic researcher, me and someone else, and we were trying to work in an organization to do some research. And they were introducing a learning object. Um, I'm, I'm using a generic term, so I don't give away anything. But we used this learning object to see if it made a difference. Now, the difficulty there was that the organization said, well, yeah, but we think this thing, this learning object is gonna create benefits. We don't wanna withhold this from some of our learners and not others. And so you tell us that we should randomly assign people to get this object or not, and we're a little bit concerned. So there's the difference between like a laboratory study where you can control things perfectly, you can randomly assign, versus studies that aren't quite as rigorously designed for the real world. That's one of the big uh, difficulties in real world research. Now you try to do both and uh, more and more in the learning space, we are doing both, but um, you know, you don't wanna, you know, what I worry about is that we, when, when you and I talk about the difficulties in research, everybody throws up their hand and says, well, I'm not gonna listen to research, I'm gonna listen to Sally. <laughs> <laughs> Why Sally? I don't know. My grandmother. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure she was a very nice lady. She was very nice. Yeah. Oh, well, I get that. I understand that. But uh, I think this is the same challenge with us talking about the, the viability of evolution. It, it's a false dichotomy when we say we're discussing evolution existing versus uh, it, 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 creationism. Right, that it doesn't. That our, I think I think that was in our second episode. The first one was the creation episode, and then we talked about <laughs> evolution. Right, but I mean, this it's a false dichotomy within evolution. It, the debates are not whether evolution is there; it's about the mechanics. It, 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 the debates are within the mechanisms for how evolution functions and works. You mean the, the science? Well, the scientists are debating that, but the I mean, let's be honest here. The Public is all over the place on that question. 
Right, but we would not put the public's views uh, that that uh, object to evolution at your level one hierarchy of evidence, would we? No, we wouldn't. Right. So, so well, we definitely have a, a problem in terms of the marketing of evolution, the viability of it as a, a concrete theory, which has yet over 140 years been impossible to disprove the viability of it as good science is, is truly there and that the debates around evolution are within the mechanics of how it's functionally manifesting over millennia, not whether it exists. And we have the same issue here when we're looking at level one, we're not debating the merits of good research. We're talking about the mechanics of how we design a good assay. Right. But let's be practical. Oh, so, damn. I hate I mean, that. Look, this, this, I don't want to be practical. This 12-level thing that I created, it, it's a monstrosity. It is. Right? We are losing viewers by the second. Well, but. Our viewers, listeners, we're losing so, listeners by okay. the second. So I just, because you and I were going to talk about this, I started thinking about this, so I decided to post on this. It's a first draft. I want people's input. And I've already got some input. Like I got really good input from a really smart guy, Bill Sawyer. He's the director of training at C3AI. It's a big AI consulting company. And um, he said this, Will, look, you know, this is all great. But what I want to know is who can I trust to compile this research and tell me what it means? Right? So I think in some sense, that's where we're, that's where, where we end up with this. But this, for those who are doing this research to practice stuff, this research translation, this kind of taxonomy is good at the upper levels. Now, at the lower levels, I think it's more relevant to most of us as practitioners. Well, so, so I'm not, I don't want, I think one of the things that I would love to see in this is it's less of a hierarchy level 12 evidence curated from the internet does not necessarily mean the evidence is bad. The evidence might be good if we could validate where that evidence on the internet is coming from and apply certain criteria to it as well. Well, let me just go down the last few levels because that's, you know, so um, level eight is evidence from research to practice experts. Level nine, evidence from the opinion of other authorities, expert committees, et cetera. Level 10, evidence from the opinion of practitioners, surveyed, interviewed, focus group, Level 11, evidence from the opinion of learners, okay? Level 12 is evidence curated from the internet. So some of the sources that we tend to believe in, in the workplace learning field, for example, are, well, what other company is doing it, right? Oh, if they're doing it, it must be good. Or there's surveys that go out, and we survey all the members of some organization, and then they come back and they're telling everybody, well, we're doing microlearning. And everybody goes, oh, microlearning must be good. That kind of thing is much less valid and useful, I believe, than some of the scientific stuff that we, uh, that's on offer. So, so ab absolutely. But if, if I hear Julie Dirksen recommend a, a, a construct that comes out of level one or two or three, I do trust Julie to have interpreted it fairly properly and accurately and i trust julie's assessment and judgment of it 
Absolutely. Right. So same if it comes from you. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get sued someday because I just believed in you at some point that'll happen. Right. That's a joke. We're going to get sued because of me. <laughs> yeah. You're going to say something that gets us sued. <laughs> well, you know, we already got that letter from the uh, national comedians uh, union and they're really upset about some of your jokes. <laughs> yes. The uh, union for clowns is ready to uh, shut us down. So, no, but, but, but I, so, so I guess my feedback in looking at these 12 is, is I'm not always sure they're the items. Uh, I, I don't want to use this phrase because you call it a hierarchy, but um, they're not always at the same hierarchical level because uh, level one is fairly concrete, but uh, seven, eight, and nine could be interchangeable um, depending on how the experiments or what they're reporting or Oh, absolutely. Sharing, and, and right? This, this is just a. Uh, I know first draft. Yeah, it's a it's a first draft. It's an estimation. It's really for discussion. So I well, it's working. Know. It's working. But I I guess my my point is that it it's. Uh, I think when I'm thinking about evidence, I think it's important for us to start with what makes evidence good, and and so when we look at evidence from systemic systematic research reviews or meta-analyses of all relevant randomized controlled trials, dot, 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 why is that good? And the answer, there's an answer. The answer is because it comes from a peered review, usually a tier one or tier two research journal could be, or, uh, or could be an experimental uh, journal, but, but it's usually a top tier research publication. It's been peer-reviewed by people who have been vetted by the industries that they represent academically. And they are often studies that have been replicated independently. They are themselves independent. In other words, these are not studies that have some kind of financial or ownership or even, even I'm going to hazard reputational uh, allegiances. Uh, and these are, are uh, studies, uh, where else did I put it, that are generalizable. In other words, they're not just qualitative studies that people uh, looked at and observed findings, but they're things that could be extrapolated from statistics uh, into generalizable formats. The, these conclusions align to some kind of research hypothesis. We're not looking at uh, for a hypothesis in search of data. This is, uh, this is data that stems from a good research design from an original hypothesis and aligns to that. Um, there are reasons why your level one is, is at the top. And well, those are the I, reasons. I, 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 you know, I don't want to take credit for, I wouldn't call it my level one because I really borrowed from the models that are already out there. And the, only so, I, the only thing I added was really the practical side which the research people don't, don't seem to care about. Um, that's, that's all. I that's know. a different problem, right? <laughs> well, that, I mean, that is a different problem, but, but that's, think, you know, that's not, where the translation stuff comes into play, right? Exactly. I, I think level one in a nutshell is it's well-designed research. It's not been done by one group. Uh, it's not uh, commercially biased. Um, it's done in many different contexts. It's done over and over. Um, it's done by experts in the field. 
and it's been vetted by other experts in the field that may or not may or may not disagree with them. Um, so it's really it's gone through the it's gone through the vetting process of science. Now, does that mean it's perfect? No, but it's better than some of these other methodologies, which have fewer controls and fewer expertise surrounding. If I were listening to the show right now, this is what I'd be asking. I would want to know where, how do we take something that is, is present? Like uh, you've written a lot on 70-20-10. Where's the research on 70-20-10? Where's the evidence on this hierarchy? Okay, well, that's a great example, which I can talk to, because I actually did a few months ago. I looked and I found uh, an article, a scientific article on 70-20-10. One or it turned out it was the first one that had been done. Right? Even though in our field, it's like all over the place. People are naming their products after it. Some mm -hmm. people are naming their children after it. It's just so, it's just so ubiquitous. And yet, there was only one scientific study. And uh, the scientific study was not really all that um, supportive of the 70-20-10 idea. So you've only found one study on 70-20-10. Do the people who sell 70-20-10 claim there's evidence for it? Some people do claim there's evidence, but other people say, <clears throat> well, it's not about the numbers. It's about the concept, you know, and actually that's, I think that's a, that's a reasonably good argument. Is there evidence for that, that it's the concept and not the numbers? Well, basically, so that people may not know what 70-20-10 is, but it's the idea that not all learning takes place through formal training. The people can learn on the job, they can learn from others. Okay, so that concept is, uh, I'm not sure you need to test that scientifically because it's fairly, um, it's fairly obvious. And how would you test it anyway? You know, how can you get a percentage of time? Because learning happens, you know, formal learning, we can say sort of it happens and we can see it happening, but learning in life or learning on the job is something that happens in a much more amorphous way. So you can't really say that, you know, it's so much time, right? Okay, I, I buy that. I'm good with that. Um, I, I guess for, for me, uh, let's summarize what we're talking about here. So on one hand, we have fairly strict criteria for what makes evidence acceptable. And we now well, have a hierarchy to help us determine where we want that evidence to fall among those criteria? I would put it this way. Uh, I would say that uh, researchers have very strong reasons to believe that some types of evidence is be are better than others. And that we as practitioners have uh, similar, a similar sense of things, but sort of at the other end of the spectrum. And our basic need is that we have evidence that's going to help us be more effective rather than less effective. And there's some things we should think about. Number one, look, this research stuff is complicated. So probably we ought to spend time going to the people that are really good at analyzing the research, translating the research, taking the research and turning it into practical recommendations. That's number one. Number two, we should be skeptical. As practitioners, we should not just assume that research is good. 
These are sort of the big takeaways. And we should ask for what the evidence is. Like you said in the beginning, you know, we should make sure when someone cites research, you ask them, well, is this opinion research? Is this scientific research? How is this, how is the research done, et cetera? Great. Excellent. And our third segment, we were going to talk about these learning translators, but it, it feels like it's kind of Im- immersed in this conversation. So can I suggest that we just talk about it now? That... some of these trusted research to practice evidence-based translators, learning translators. So uh, obviously you're one of them. Well, Matt, before we get into this, I, my gosh, you never let me get to the topic. No, because you, I want you to tell us something else. What's that? Um, It's approaching the holidays. Can you give us that recipe for the pumpkin pie that you make? No, I'm just kidding. I want you to tell us the story about your trip to France and how you talked about some of this research-based stuff and how people got excited about research translators. So I gave a talk that was really, it it was based on the work you do and Clark does, Clark Quinn, our friend Clark Quinn. And uh, I I translated uh, uh, the title sort of based on Clark's book so it, it was uh, mis, misconceptions, and then I added snake oil and snake oil. And um, Will, of course, uh, went to Google Translate and identified that as a pimp and didn't realize that's what snake oil was I, in I French. Not, I'm not responsible for that you word. Are, you Google. are. Resp- Google. Okay. All right. All right. But then, but then my friend, my colleague, goes on my post and implies that I'm making a, a horrible joke about prostitution. So uh, can't take you anywhere, Will. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I'm giving the talk and, and it, it's, it's, it was, I, I'll admit it was a tough one for me because it's the first time I've, I've done this topic and, um, and I was really paranoid. I had a bit of imposter syndrome going on. I was, uh, uh, you know, I'm not you and I'm not Clark and I'm not any of the people we're about to talk about. And I um, uh, was worried I was going to insert foot. Uh, and uh, it went fairly well. We'll see. The video is going to come out soon. Uh, but it went fairly well. And uh, at the I ended with a list of research to practice experts and I introduced them as learning translators. And I shared my, my four, the four I like uh, to go to the most, which is you and Patty and Clark and Julie. And, and I also added Carl Cap. And, uh, and, um, and afterward, a lot of people came up and talked about that. Um, it was, frankly, I probably should be a little disappointed because they were less interested in the, the meat of the talk and more interested in, in you guys. But uh, well, well, that's that's really interesting. Um, why were people so interested in sort of the res- this research translation piece? Because the thrux of my talk was, practically speaking, 
you don't have to be able to read formal research. You need to know who to trust, go to them, and go to several of you, right? Like if I don't know you personally, and even if I do, I shouldn't trust you. I should trust you. And if Julie agrees with you, and if Clark agrees with you, um, maybe then I can be happy, right? Um, but if I could get two or three data points from you translators, then that's a lot easier than trying to uh, mess around with a bunch of statistics and really long words in, a, in, a, in an academic paper. And um, I spent probably half the talk showing people how wrong they were in their, their commonly held beliefs. So, for example, I asked people uh, I opened with how many of you know, raise your hand if you agree with the statement that only 10% of our brain is used. About half the people raised their hand in the room. And uh, I was very happy that uh, only two people raised their hand when I said uh, create, right brain people are more creative than left brain people. And only two people raised their hand. So I was, I was pleased to see that. But the Mozart effect, you know, does classical music, specifically Mozart, uh, make our learning more amenable? Uh, uh, close to 75% of the people raised their hand. Um, and so I, wow. I, all through this talk, I kept um, showing them where, where the research didn't support their commonly held views. And I used a few of your questions on uh, neuroscience and, and I used uh, one of your questions on learning styles. And, um, and, uh, and so it was a constant entrapment series of jolts, right? <laughs> and then here's the research that shows that we're wrong. And I'd spent a bit of time talking about how I've, I'm, I'm not one of you. I'm, I'm like them. And I spent years selling learning styles inventories. And I sell DISC. And today, I still will sell you DISC. I'll just tell you it's as valid as astrology. Um, you know, I'm happy to sell you DISC if you want to give me money. I'm a prostitute. Yeah, maybe that's where the pimp thing came out. <laughs> huh, now I get it. So, <laughs> um, so I think the reason people, people were like, oh, shoot, what do we do? And having a group of you guys out there who speak normally and, and – use uh, words that every one of us can understand and relate to uh, was comforting. And to say that, okay, just because you can't read these academic papers and, and don't want to muddle through them, no problem. There are people that do that for a living. And here they are. And I think that that was a nice solution for folks to know that there was a, a reference, a reference that they could turn to, a resource they could turn to. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. When I started out doing this research to practice stuff, which is like 40 years, years ago, 40 years ago, <laughs> it's 21 years ago. Okay. <laughs> and, but who's counting? Um, I used to tell people that they should be reading the research articles. And then over time, I just realized that that's just not really possible. It's just mean. That's just mean. It's <laughs> mean to make people do that. Well, and it's so hard to do, you know, you really, there's a certain expertise that it takes in certain traps that are out there. Um, you know, a lot of people think, oh, I read one article and, and I understand the world. Well, you don't, you know, um, and we can't really take anything from one article. And Well, and that's the problem with books, right? I mean, 
Um, should I trust what Malcolm Gladwell says in one of his books? Is Malcolm Gladwell a good translator? And I'm not saying yes or no, because <laughs> I definitely don't want to get sued on that one. He's got a lot of fans, right? He does. He does. At the same time, um, you, you could take the Invisible Gorilla guys, Dan, uh, Daniel Simons and Christopher Chabri, and they wrote a wonderful book uh, called The Invisible Gorilla that translates a lot of their research. Is that more reliable? Well, I think so. Partly because what they did is they took their replicated research, the research that others have replicated of their ideas, and they summarized it in a popular text way. And that to me is a much more reliable book because it's based on research that they not only understand, but they conducted themselves, or they were translating other people's research in, the, in similar areas. And, and they told the same kind of stories that you might find in a Malcolm Gladwell book, you know, um, but they did it from a basis of context where they understood a greater context. And, and for me, that be, makes them much more reliable. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Anyway, we, we had one of these evidence-based uh, researchers and evidence to practice folks on uh, a couple of weeks ago. And that was Patty Shank. And, um, We've had we, Julie on as we well. We had Julie on, whom I adore. Ryan I think Watkins. Rocks. Yeah. Uh, who else? Um, oh, Clark. How are we forgetting Clark? Oh, Clark Quinn. Yeah, we're going to have him on pretty soon, too. Absolutely. We need to get him on. So, And I especially want him to come on sooner than later so he can tell his new recent fire stories. So he, he got caught in some of the fires. Oh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Not in a fun way. I, I mean in a serious catch us up kind of it's adventure way right so, so here's here's the here's the list i put on my little blog post we're gonna send to people uh there's me patty shank julie dirks and clark quinn miriam nealon ruth clark donna clark let me finish my list jane yes, bozart jane is the uh research director of the e-learning guild she's doing great stuff there and um ulrich bozer who's uh, written a book on learning that I really like. He, he's very thoughtful as well. All right. And let's move into best and worst. So can I go first? You should go first. Okay. So I already shared my best, which was during this talk last week, I gave the question, how, how many of you uh, think that right brain people are more creative? And, and I was really expecting a large number of people to, to raise up their hand and, and still buy into this drivel. But no, no, only 2% did. Two out of 100 people raised their hand. So I was very happy to see that. And that was my best. My worst, however, is uh, I know all my worst come from LinkedIn. I really should stop looking at LinkedIn. But this guy, I have, uh, I've never talked to the guy. I don't know the guy. I'm not connected to the guy. But uh, he posted this thing that was horrifying, referencing a journal called Neuromage, uh, which is, um, it's a peer reviewed, um, but 
uh, open source journal for neurology, uh, for neuroscience. And we're talking real neuroscience. Like, you know, like if you read the, the types of articles in it, um, you won't understand any of them. Like, um, you, like so, neurons and axons and PC uh, it, worse, and worse, yeah. worse. So, so like just to give you, uh, uh, an idea. So stimulus aware spatial filtering for single trial neural response and temporal response function estimation in high density EEG with applications in auditory research or sex biased trajectories of amygdalo hypocampal morphology change over human development, things like this, right? So this guy is referencing this journal that has literally thousands and thousands of articles like that, right? And he says, research shows, based on uh, an article that he read in NeuralMesh, that the brain is an organ and it gets bigger, it grows while you sleep at night and when you wake and it's at its largest size in the morning, just like other organs men have. Right, and he lets it lie. Oh, and of, I mean, horror, right? Now, people are laughing like they're they're embracing his joke. I'm looking for women to kill him because you know it, it, it's a bit off color and inappropriate, right? This was written in French on LinkedIn. It right? was, but don't blame the French. No, don't blame no, the one guy. In context, right? right? And. So, so they're, they're, he's, they're like 70 comments and a, a billion likes, which I find irritating that a dumb joke like this uh, gets traction. But so I wrote to him and I, I said, all kidding aside, you mentioned Neuralmage. What article? I want to know where the research, you, you say research says, and, and I know I'm probably being a dick by, by asking this, but I wanted to know because he, I know he meant it as a joke, but I'm going after him. He wrote back, giving him credit. He wrote back and very nicely. He wrote it's in the 2015 volume. Okay. Well, I went to 2015. First of all, there are, let me go back to it. So uh, all issues. So in 2015, there are volumes 104 to 123. And volumes. Volumes. Not, volumes. Not, not just uh, articles. Not just articles. And the shortest of the volumes is 280 or 256 pages long. That's the shortest of the volumes with many of them. Uh, we, one of them goes 632 pages the May volume. So we're, we're talking thousands of pages just within 2015. So this guy doesn't have a clue. He just, no, I think he's around. pretty smart. He's yeah. Pretty smart. You know, if you're going to hide, if you're going to hide a needle, right. Put it in the neuromage haystack. Anyway, those were my best and my worst. I'm sorry. My worst was much longer. What are yours? Well, I'm going to start with my worst. So the thing that's driving me nuts is this thing that I keep getting asked, and I'm, I'm known for being uh, knowledgeable about evaluation and learning. So I, people come to me, and I see it in the ether, I see it on LinkedIn, I see it on Twitter, 
everybody wants to know how to measure how to measure the impact of learning and it's driving me nuts because the implication there is we have to prove our goal when we do evaluation is just to prove that we're doing a good job not to find out whether we're doing a good job not to find out what we can make better but to prove that we're doing a good job to me this is malpractice it's biased it's a reason that our organization should fire us, but it's the thing that's, so that's my worst in learning. Now my best in learning, and I'm only saying this because uh, I'm hoping that uh, LinkedIn will one day sponsor us, but I think my best in learning is the LinkedIn discussion. Now, yes, there can be some bad information there, but what I find really helpful on them, when there's a good one, is two things. One is you can have a really good back and forth and you can learn something from the discussion. And I've been in very many of them. Matt, you're really great at posting something on LinkedIn um, every day or almost every day. And it generates good discussions and I learn from that. And the other thing is for those of us who are sort of in a train the trainer role or a research translator role, and we need to understand um, how to phrase or frame and to know what kind of issues are out there. Um, reading on LinkedIn is a very good way to understand where the market is, where everybody in the field is. So uh, there was a really good discussion this week, for example, on learning styles again, right? And somebody said, well, wait a minute. Um, I'm really ticked off at all you people posting research about <laughs> learning styles. And, you know, I, I asked, well, why, why, why does the research make you mad? And they said, well, no, it's actually not the research that makes me mad. What makes me mad is sort of, you know, the arrogance behind the research. And obviously we had a good discussion about that. And then somebody said, well, you know, yeah, the research might be wrong, but if it gets me to do better learning design, uh, isn't that a good thing? And so there's really good discussion around that. And I, I disagree. I think it actually sends us in the wrong direction. Great discussion, really, really helpful for me to learn it as a research translator, because now I can go out and sort of understand my audience better. Great. So Will, that wraps up another episode of Truth and Learning. We've done it again. I know. We've turned off more people than we've gained. Thank you. All right. I'm stopping recording. <laughs>